Hey, it's Sarah. On this episode, Charlotte Wilder of Sports Illustrated and I discuss her Donna Martin graduates moment, her run-in with the bad side of tribalism in sports, and the time she was nearly run over by a pontoon boat. Take a minute. Subscribe to the show. You'll be able to get every episode right when it comes out. Also, you can rate it five stars, preferably, and leave a review. Before we get to today's episode, I want to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, The Mina Kimes Show, featuring Lenny. This week, Mina chats with Dominique Foxworth about the CBA negotiations between the NFL and the NFLPA. Dominique knows a thing or two about how those talks go because he used to be the president of the NFLPA. Plus, those two have a great friendship. Always a good listen when they get together. You can find The Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Charlotte Wilder, and my dilemma is that I can't make myself fold my laundry after I've done it. So here's the thing. I prefer folding to laundry, but my husband is a laundry over folding dude, so I totally get it. I get why some people, for whatever reason, do not like to fold. Part of the problem is if you throw everything into a laundry bin and like bring it upstairs or bring it to your room or whatever, and then it sits there for a couple days, it like becomes part of the background and you don't even notice it or remember to do it. So I would say put a couple reminders in your phone, one for right around when it's supposed to come out of the dryer so you don't forget it in there, another for a few hours later in case you're feeling lazy right when you put it in, wait a couple hours and then say, all right, I'm going to get to this laundry, and then one for maybe 15 minutes before you usually go to bed. So if you've like put it in your room... And you, you get upstairs, you're like, oh, I just want to go to bed, though. I don't have time for this. Set an alarm for like 15 minutes before bed. Find a good podcast. Find some music to listen to. Fold it while you're watching TV. It'll go by super quick. You'll avoid all the piles sitting around in your room for days. Should work. Now, that's only if you're just sort of forgetting to do it. If it's a conscious choice not to do it, like for whatever reason, you just hate folding things or putting things in drawers, then to that, I would say I probably have to give you a little bit of a guilt trip. Something like... uh Grow up, Charlotte. You're not going to have your mom around to do things for you your whole life. And how do you think you're ever going to settle down and get married if you got piles of clothes all over your house? All right. Now, I have zero reason to believe that that's what your mom sounds like. But I feel like a mom who sounds like that does a better job with the guilt trip. So I'm going to stick with that. And if that doesn't work, then you're on your own, I guess. Just piles of laundry everywhere forever. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Charlotte Wilder. She's a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. Also used to have a TV show online and a podcast for SI, but pretty much focused on the writing now. She also has written for SB Nation, USA Today, Huffington Post, Boston Globe, Boston Mag, GQ. Really funny, really smart, and has such an interesting story of how she got into this business, which I think is great and super useful people out there that maybe came across the idea of wanting to work in sports later or are concerned about whether their background is full of the bona fides necessary to compete. Um, she really took a winding path and found her way and even admits that, you know, while she's still learning about a lot of stuff, it's actually led to some of her best questions and best story writing. Uh, she talks about a job that she made a company create and then she quit it after one day, uh, a YouTube video that she made that caught people's microwaves on fire. She uh, talks about how, you know, she's trying to be funny in a world that has constant sexualization of women and how it makes it more difficult to find those spaces where you're allowed to be funny. Uh, also a story that she wrote that got her rape and death threats and had her parents go to the police. So she's had this really winding path of finding her success, but I think is one of the brightest young voices in the industry. I had a blast talking to her. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. That's what she said. Happy to have Charlotte Wilder on the pod, uh, my long lost internet acquaintance who I finally met in person Super Bowl week on several occasions, including, uh, the rainy, muddy, extravagantly wonderful mess that was the Gronk Beach. And we will get to that later. But, uh, since we finally met in person, now I just want to know more about you. So that's why I have people on the pod so I can be nosy and pick their brains and find out everything about them. And that means starting way back when. When you were a kid, what kind of kid was Charlotte Wilder? Oh, man. Well, first of all, I'm honored that you would want to know me. That is, uh, that's about the highest compliment you can give someone. So I, I do not take that lightly, Sarah. Um, <laughs> you know, the kid Charlotte Wilder was pretty much exactly like the adult Charlotte Wilder, which is either <laughs> great or terrifying. Um <laughs> I think it's funny. A lot of people, like when I was in, in grade school and you would like sign 
people's yearbooks. I recently found a bunch of them and I was reading the things that kids wrote and most of them were like, never change. And I was like, I've tried, I can't. <laughs> um, and the rest so were think, just writing on your crack. <laughs> right. Or, or like uh, hags have a good summer or yeah, whatever. Of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I, I've always been um, fairly curious and, um, you know, I love, I love knowing people and, and, you know, holding on to friends and, and meeting new people and kind of figuring out what, what everybody's deal is or as close to that as you can get. But my parents used to joke, they were like, you're either going to be a rabbi or a judge. Cause I had like <laughs> such strong opinions about what was, what was right and what was wrong. And like, my parents would also say that my bullshit meter was set too low. And uh, ah. so I think, yeah, I think all those things are kind of still true about me, except I didn't become a rabbi or a judge. So that sounds extremely familiar because I have a very low bullshit meter and also both my parents and my sister are lawyers. So it was really? this combination of like being extremely curious and wanting to write, but also uh, adjudicating everything and having a very like specific idea of what's right and wrong and that everyone should need to know my opinion on it at all times. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I love it. I, I've sort of, you know, I've been following you for a while and um, even before I was, in sports media. And I always got that sense. I was like, I feel like Sarah and I have sort of a similar, uh, bullshit tolerance situation going on here. Exactly. Um, so what did your parents do for work when you were growing up? Um, so my dad is an entrepreneur. He started a bunch of different tech companies, um, currently working on one that he founded with these MIT professors to make much smaller and more environmentally friendly batteries. So he's a lot smarter than I am. Um, and then my mom, uh, is a writer and was a journalist when I was growing up, wrote for the Atlantic, New York Times, uh, Esquire. Um, and that was very cool to grow up watching her do that. But uh, she sort of transitioned more to writing books when I was growing up. So that's, uh, I, I come from very, um, very driven people, I would say. Yeah. So you also worked on boats, I read, as a child? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I like to joke and like, uh, fun fact, I taught sailing. Um, but I actually <laughs> did I did I had the, the like the most New England upbringing possible. My parents, both of their parents retired to Maine um, and they actually met up there. And so um, my grandfather, both of my family history is like kind of nuts. My mom's side of the family is like, you know, Eastern European Jewish immigrants. And then my dad's side is like as waspy as it gets, like we're related to four signers of the Declaration of Independence or something. <laughs> Um, like, it's like a very funny mix. My mom, uh, her father was an opera composer and my dad's dad was, um, a Soviet expert, a spy in the CIA. So like, Whoa. I have, I have by far like the least cool job of anyone in my family, which is kind of funny. Cause like, I think my job's pretty cool, but you'll be um, able to write about them. Like maybe you're perfectly yeah. positioned to tell the life history of this incredible family timeline. That thank you. I, I would like to think so. I think uh, I think my mom's currently working on something, so I'm I'm psyched for that to come together. But um, yeah, so because my parents met in Maine, we would you know spend my mom and I would spend summers up there. My dad would come back and forth because you know, my mom was a writer; she could be anywhere. Um, and I just became obsessed with sailing. I went to this little sailing camp growing up, um, not like the cool yacht club one, but like the. <laughs> really dilapidated boat club one. Like I think I started sailing there in 2002 or 2003 and my grandfather who died in 1990, his picture was still on the new members bulletin board. <laughs> I like <laughs> so how you're selling like, us on this dilapidated sailing club. Like uh, well, the, I mean, hard, the boats were literally, hard knock like, story I know of sounds, Charlotte Wilder. She didn't get a new boat. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds, it sounds totally nuts, but like the boats were falling apart. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't as awful and bougie as it sounds. I mean, it was still pretty awful and bougie, but like it could have been worse. Um, but yeah, so I grew up obsessed with that and, and I started teaching there when I was 14 and then I eventually was running the program from when I was like 18 to 22 in the summers. Um, wow. And it was, it was pretty great. It was the kind of thing where I was looking around and I was like, you know, I believe that my future is going to be great, but like sitting in a boat and making jokes with my friends while we watch kids like capsize might be about as good as it gets. <laughs> uh, all right. So when you were in high school, did you have a big dream of something that you wanted to do when you grew up or was it sort of 
uh, the, the Stugatz lazy river approach, since we're talking boats here, where you're like, let's just see where life takes me. Uh, I think it was kind of a mix of both. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I was also really into photography and painting. So I was sort of constantly going back and forth between like, you know, what is the thing that I love most? And it kind of, it kind of just got to the point where I was like, well, what am I doing? And what I was doing was writing. Um, you know, I was the editor of the school paper. I was like the yearbook's humor editor, whatever that is. I think I made it up and they were like, sure, I guess you can do that. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, in high school, I went to an all girls prep school outside of Boston and it was super rigid. I was, I did not, it was probably not the right place for me. It taught me a lot kind of how to, be political and work in a system that maybe, you know, I wasn't exactly right for. They didn't love creativity. So they like, mm. I wrote, I would write these editorials about how stupid the school was and then get called into the headmistress's office. <laughs> and then they like tried to suspend me for two weeks, my senior fall. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to get into college if you do this. Can you please not do this? And it was actually one of the most moving things that's ever happened to me. I, uh, I was, I was supposed to be suspended for two weeks and I, you know, I told my classmates, I was like, I think I'm pretty screwed. And uh, the next day they showed up to an all school assembly wearing armbands that said free Charlotte. Oh my God. Um, Donna Martin graduates. This is a reference that is way too old for you, but you had a Donna Martin graduates moment. That is the coolest thing ever. It was, and yeah, I was so moved. I had no idea they were going to do it and, uh, and they didn't suspend me. So it was like, wow, it was, it was, it was pretty great. But, um, you know, so so going to college, I um, I knew I wanted to write. I didn't really have many ins to the uh, industry. Um, my mom, you know, she hadn't been she hadn't been writing for publications regularly for a while. Um, and so I went to Colby College up in Maine, which I believe you have Colby relatives, right? That's right. My name is Sarah Colby Spain. The That's school just so cool. Is in fact named after my ancestor who made money creating a railroad, I believe. I forget this a lot and my parents get very disappointed, but the uh <laughs> the uh the uh, Colby College, like I guess he gave a big financial thing that essentially saved the school in its early years and then they renamed it after him, uh which is also the guy who they named a city in Wisconsin after, which is where the cheese came from. He seems to be a no very way. successful gentleman, this Colby guy. And so it feels right that I married a Wisconsin boy, seeing that I love, you know, cheese in general and that I, you know, oh, am, yeah. am, you know, so it all worked out. Well, but I've heard like amazing things to... about Colby and it was on my list of places to potentially go. Listen, you got to come back with me sometime. It was it was such a wonderful place for me. I mean, it was it was. I would not get in today. I don't think, I think I applied to like 15 schools and got into two and a half and Colby was the half because it was a wait list. And <laughs> I sent, I sent a professor there, some of my, some of my poetry. And I was like, Hey, if you think this is good, could you like tell them to let me in? And he did. So <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like my it's life maybe hasn't been so much you. like, well, it, 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 it hasn't been so much like a lazy river as like a series of falling off various waterfalls and somehow ending up. Okay. Um, so, but when it, when I was in college, I started a blog because there was a kid uh, a year older than um, I was who started a blog. And I was like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And then I, I would just write. I would just sort of put up what I music I was listening to or, you know, my thoughts on something or a bunch of photos I'd taken. Um, and I sort of realized I was like, OK, this is this is the thing that I am that I am compelled to do. I cannot I can't not write. And so it became pretty clear that I knew this wasn't going to be easy to do. I knew it was going to be hard, but I had some harebrained belief that I was good enough to do it. And um, that's sort of, that's where it kicked off. And I was like, well, let's, let's do this. Let's try it. So you were originally there hoping to do poetry and photography, and then you start this blog and, you know, of course you're able to use the, the photography on the blog and all that stuff, but it becomes clear that the, the writing is the focus and you actually end up getting some freelance gigs at Boston Magazine from submissions of your blog, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Um, my, I had a friend who worked there and she, um, you know, we were all like early twenties and she would sort of toss me. Um, editorial opportunities and I would treat it as though it were like my you know the next great American novel and it was like a blog <laughs> about sneaker fashion pop-up or something <laughs> I was like this is my big moment <laughs> this is my chance 
I love that. Okay, so that's your first kind of writing gig then. Um, and that led to uniquely America's Test Kitchen? Yeah, so <laughs> the story's kind of funny. Basically, I um, – so I had – when I graduated from college, um, you know, I, I actually – I think I've, I've said this before. I feel extremely lucky, and I think this is sort of where my privilege shows um, in that my parents were supportive of me wanting to be a writer. And I said, look, I don't want to have – I don't want to get, you know – a normal desk job out of school. I really want to, I believe that when I've left myself open to things, the best opportunities have come, but that means, you know, I was, my parents were basically like, okay, we'll let you live at home. And, you know, I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to buy myself groceries. Like I, I had such a safety net that I was able to take risks that people who are not as privileged don't get to take. And, and that's really upsetting to me about the industry in general is that, you know, to be able to do this, it's really so much easier and possible if you have that support to, you know, do the work that to take the unpaid internships, which I did. I had an internship at um, a literary agency and a publishing company. And it became very clear to me that I didn't want to be selling other people's work. I wanted to be doing the work. Um, and, but, you know, I, there, there were a few different influences in my life at that point and, and a few people who were like, you need to get a real job. And my parents were like, no, I think that you can I think you can really do this. I think, you know, they saw promise. They saw my drive. And, you know, I would be still posting on my blog like five times a day. Um, and so I convinced an email marketing company in Boston to make a marketing position for me. Um, <laughs> and I showed up for the first day of work and I immediately post something on my blog, my new boat boss calls me into her office and she has this, she has this um, word cloud above her desk. That's like, love what you do, do what you love. And she's sitting there. She's like, Charlotte, I cannot wait for you to be as passionate about email marketing as I am. And I blacked out. <laughs> I, I, I literally like fainted in her office and I called Not my literally. mom. You literally fainted? I, I mean, I like, I like blacked out for a second. She was like, are you okay? And I was like, uh, yeah. And like make it through the rest of the day. And I called my mom in tears. I was like, can you meet me at this bar near where the office was at the time? And she, she met me there and she had a glass of wine waiting for me. And I was like, I'm not going back. She was like, I'm sorry, what? And I was like, I'm, I'm not going back. You created a job and now you're over it. (laughs) Yeah. And I emailed them and I was like, sorry, I don't want to waste your time. Um, And then I ended up, I um, sort of did some freelance stuff for, that summer. And then, you know, by the end of that summer, I was like, I actually I really need a job um, and applied for, there was a web editor position. I just applied for blind on uh, cooks illustrated magazine, America's test kitchen. And uh, they were like, you know, we have someone who we think might be leaving. And I think, and they thought that would be a better fit for me, but they wouldn't know for a few weeks. And by that point I was like, I got to have my own place. So I had an apartment to pay for. So I took a job at a PR firm Worked there for two weeks. America's Test Kitchen called and they were like, do you want the job? I said, yes. I gave the PR firm three weeks notice. And then they started at America's Test Kitchen. Um, so I was just like, my dad called me a job tourist. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, it kind of worked out. I was, at, I was at America's Test Kitchen for two years. Um, it was 2012 and no one really knew what to do with YouTube. So they put me in charge of their YouTube channel, which is now a job of like a senior vice president. But yeah. at the time they were like, you're a gear kid. You understand the internet. And I would, I would produce these videos. I made one. Um, I've told a story on Twitter before, but th- there was a video I made about how to make kale chips in the microwave. Uh, and I got all these angry emails from people saying that their microwaves were catching on fire. Oh no. Yeah. And, and when I realized, when I didn't change it, when I didn't care was when I was like, I don't think this is the right subject matter for me to be involved in. Why didn't you um, care what, that you were lighting people's microwaves on fire? I mean, like I cared, but I was like, this isn't what I'm passionate about. I'm not passionate about kale chips. I'm not passionate about <laughs> fixing things when I inadvertently blow up people's appliances. You know, Why like, did I they think blow that I'm up? a lot. Like, just certain microwaves think, couldn't handle the specific instructions that yours did? Yeah, I think because I was using the industrial microwaves in the test kitchen. Oh, no. Um, 
And then people were like trying to do it on their, you know, whatever, like easy bake of, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, oh I just really, um, that was not, that was not my finest moment. Um, but I did, <laughs> I did learn a lot there. That's funny. Okay. So you leave America's Test Kitchen or did you have another gig lined up already? I had another job. I, um, I realized, you know, I, the, the ATK job was, amazing and I learned a ton but it was also it was sort of half writing and editorial and half marketing um and you know I was like running their Amazon affiliates uh newsletters I was putting together their um sort of promotional marketing stuff for a bunch of different platforms and I was just like this is not this is not what I want to be doing um and I think there are people who are probably better at it than I am because it requires a lot of attention to detail and if you don't care you know, people end up lighting their microwaves on fire. But um, <laughs> so I, I, I heard that um, Boston.com, which was um, had been the Boston Globe's website, they were spinning that off into its own thing and they were hiring writers. And um, so I, I got they hired me as a as a staff writer there um, in 2014, I think, late 2014. Um, and I was, you know, that the place was. Um, not super organized, I think would be a, a diplomatic way to put it. Um, and which for me ended up being kind of a godsend. I mean, I, I did everything I reported on, um, you know, a lot of local reporting, which I think was really valuable. They'd be like, we'll call the police chief. Like, you know, there was this protest happened here. You got to go cover it. I covered, you know, like bomb threats at mosques. I wrote about wow. Syrian refugees I wrote about, you know, I covered a lot of the, um, a lot of New England. So, I, you know, when there's this uh, Coast Guard ship that um, sank in a hurricane and, you know, I had to like call the grieving families and, and put together the stories. So it was really, really informative and I, I think invaluable in terms of actually learning the ins and outs of doing um, uh, real, real reporting, really. So then you make the switch to sports for USA Today. You actually got uh, recruited, I guess, to go work for For the Win, um, which is one of my kind of bookmarked sites that like every morning when I'm going through all the sites, that's one of the ones I scroll through to see what's going on, especially the lighter side of things. Um, you haven't brought up sports unless you consider sailing a sport, which I'm sure some people do. And I will then too, because I don't want my mentions to be full of people who think that sailing is a sport, but you haven't mentioned <laughs> other more mainstream sports or your interest or work with them before. So how did you feel getting recruited from, from someone that wants to bring you in to write about sports. Yeah. You know, it was funny, Sarah. I, uh, I mean, I'm sure you get this a lot as a woman in sports where, where guys will find out what you do and be like, so have you always been into sports? Um, as though like, <laughs> um, a woman no, I don't even possibly... get that. I get, do you like sports then? Like present tense. <laughs> right. I'm like, nope. Just spend all my fucking time watching and talking about them. It's a weird choice exactly. actually for me, this well, career. Cause I what, hate sports. What, I don't even like them. Exactly. I mean, but what's funny to me about that question or something that I sort of never really know how to, I mean, if someone asked me, do you like sports now? I'm like, yeah, are you a moron? Um, but <laughs> if they, if I get the, have you, have you always liked sports? It's, it's tricky for me because I, I don't want to feel like I'm letting any, any women down, but I, I didn't, you know, like I grew yeah. up, I grew up, I always played sports. Um, I love the Red Sox. I love the Patriots, but it was very local for me. It was very connected to the teams that I cared about. Um, to be honest, I did not, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but um, I didn't know who Kevin Durant was when I went to For the Win. Um, and it was a real leap of faith for me. I think I had started to realize that you know, the serious reporting I was doing was incredible and important and, and super valuable from a learning perspective. But I sort of was also doing essays for Boston.com at the same time. And I realized that the things I was doing that people connected with most were when I sort of was using my actual voice and incorporating humor. And sports just seemed like a natural fit to do that. Um, you know, there's so much room to play with it and not everything has to be serious. You know, obviously, there are huge social issues and incredibly important things you can get at in sports, but you can also kind of just purely have fun with it. And so when for the win, they, um, they needed writers and, and they were like, look, we don't care that you're not uh, immersed in the sports world. I had, I'd been doing stuff on the Patriots at that point for boston.com sort of here and there, but um, they were like, you can write and you can figure out the rest of it. So I, I knew I wanted to be in a national place. I knew I was ambitious. I wanted to, um, 
you know, I used to look at, at people talking to each other on Twitter when I had like a hundred followers and just sort of be there, like put me in coach, you know, like watching the Grantland people um, or whatever in like 2013. Um, but so I, I moved to DC, uh, started working at for the win. And it was honestly, I would, I was putting some days I would put like 5,000 words on the internet a day. I mean, you know, posting until I couldn't see straight, but um, while it was, it was hard. Um, it was also incredibly informative. I mean, it was like getting a master's degree in, in everything sports. Like I, I would look up everybody I was writing about. I feel like it gave me such an incredible knowledge base, not only of the current landscape, but of, you know, the historical aspects of sports because everything always ties back. Um, I don't, I truly don't think that you could have designed a course that in six months would have taught me as much as I learned in that, in the time that I was at USA Today, just really kind of in the blog minds. Yeah, it's interesting. My first real sports heavy gig was at um, Fox Sports before FS1 when it was regional networks and I was uh, logging games and writing highlight sheets for the anchors who would do this nightly highlight show. So I would sit and watch a game and have to write first manually and then via computer everything that was happening and then highlight the best parts. And then if it was a 30 second highlight, I'd pick the top three plays and have to write what the anchor would say about those plays. And I was watching everything from hockey to NASCAR to golf. And so even growing up, loving Michael Jordan and being into sports and playing collegiate sports, it's very different than watching a game and needing to actually understand why that offsides was called or why, you know, that was a major versus a minor penalty or anything like that. It was such a good way to kind of immerse me. And, and I find especially when I go speak at like colleges or groups. And I've loved it in the recent years, there's been male allies in the audience that have said, how can I be better supportive of like the women in our class or other women in the industry? And I say, one thing is to not judge their passion or talent for what they're doing now based on how long they've been at it or how much they grew up around it. Because even though I made very clear that I was obsessed with Michael Jordan and every birthday, every Christmas, I wanted tickets or or books or VHS tapes. That's how old I am. Um, and people would still not really engage me in those conversations because my parents weren't really into sports. And so like, while a boy my age would have been constantly asked and, and fostered that and brought to games and talked about stuff. I don't know that the people in my universe really thought of me as like that same kind of kid. And so it wasn't until I got old enough to literally pay for my own tickets to go to games and watch stuff that I was like, Oh, you can just like, go to a football game when you want to go to a football game. Like you can, people make yeah. a, like a life out of doing this stuff. So I had a ton to catch up on and it's really scary. Like to, to join an industry where some people can tell you like who had the most home runs in 1975. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, you know, I think that, I think that boys are with women when you know a lot about sports, it is a, um, Still, and, and less so, less so now, but still to a certain extent, it's a surprise, you know, like I, I'll still, you know, meet people or be at a dinner party or something and some guy will bring up, uh, you know, an, an NFL trade and I'll have an opinion on it. And there's, there's a split second where you can tell, they're like, what? You, <laughs> like, you understand right. that? And, you know, less so now is, as I think, um, you know, when I meet people now, I think they know what I do more than maybe they used to, but um, it, it was definitely, it was definitely a lot. And there are still moments where I feel, I don't know if it's an insecurity or a, um, you know, sort of that lingering imposter syndrome where I'm like, man, do I actually know this or not? Do I deserve to be here? Cause I, I know I deserve to be here and I've worked really hard and I think I'm good at what I do, but there are these moments when, you know, someone will bring something up and I might not know the player they're talking about. And I'm like, Whoa, does everyone know more than I do? And, the truth is, I don't think they do. Like, I think that this industry has, I think a lot of people, um, first of all, I think the best things that I've done or the things that I'm proudest of have come when I have asked obvious questions that I, I think something, a pitfall I've noticed in a lot of things in sports media is sometimes people don't ask good questions or, or questions that might be more illuminating because they're afraid of not sounding like an expert. Right. Um, and I think coming into this, knowing I'm not an expert, knowing that anything I know I have learned and come at with fresh eyes, so much about sports is just like being conditioned, like this is the way we've always done it, so it makes sense. And like I came in, the first time I figured out how they did the NBA draft lottery, I was like, wait, 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 they are 
using ping pong balls <laughs> to pick who gets to pick what first, but not necessarily because there are percentages involved, <laughs> which might screw everything up. And, and my coworkers were like, uh, yeah, no, that's right. And I was like, you realize that's absurd, right? <laughs> and, and they were like, uh, yeah, do you actually want to write about that? And so I did. And like the, the piece did really well because people were like, wow, if you think about it that way, that's actually insane. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and coming so with I those think, fresh eyes, you're not like, let me just accept the things that have always been. You're like, wait, why do we do it like this? Yeah. And I think that's why I've been able to have a lot of fun with it, too, and, and, and be funny about it, because I can be like, I, I mean, everything to me is unless it's truly horrible. It's like pretty funny. Um, and I think that I look for the ridiculous and I sort of delight in that. And sports is just absolutely full of it. And so it's been really fun to kind of get to explore that and poke around. And I, I've done everything now from, you know, it sort of reminded me of what you were saying about working at Fox, the Fox affiliate. I, you know, I, I've gotten to do everything from like NASCAR to horse racing to NFL to MLB to hockey to whatever it is. Um, and you just get this sort of wonderful exposure to these different worlds and, and niche fan bases. So you're there for a stretch and then you end up at SI. Or first SB Nation and then SI? Yeah. So I was at I was at USA Today for not too long. I think it was like seven months before SB Nation um, kind of became aware of me. When I was, you know, I would be blogging all day at, for the win, and then I would actually go home. I would get back to my apartment. I would, I would get to the office at like 7-ish. I would get home around 5. I would like go for a run, eat dinner, and then often work on longer features that they would let me report. But I would be doing that from like, you know, seven to midnight some nights and it got really it, it it was tiring but it was um I think I knew that this job is the hardest one of the hardest industries to break into and something that if I wanted people to take me seriously or to give me more opportunities I was going to have to like really prove that I could do it um and you know that's sort of a mix of talent but also work ethic and sticking with it and and it's not always easy or fun but you know you do it um and so people were kind of starting to notice that I was doing SB Nation, brought me in as a staff writer, um, and I was there for about a year and a half. Um, but that was, SB Nation was really where um, I got a chance to start, you know, really investing time and um, thought into longer pieces and um, traveling for stories and really kind of feeling like I was a, a part of the mix in, in the national sports media in a way that's that was very gratifying. So then what sends you to SI? Um, Chris Stone, who was then the editor in chief, um, he reached out and he was like, Hey, we'd love to, we'd love to talk to you. They were in a position to hire and um, they wanted to bring me in. I'd, I'd been doing a lot of video stuff at SB Nation at that point. Um, they were like, we want you to do, they had at that point, uh, SI still had SI TV, which was their, streaming platform and they were trying to fill programming on it and they really kind of took a flyer on me. They were like, Hey, we want you to have your own show. We want you to write for us. You know, they, they liked what I'd been doing. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. So I started there. I think it was May of 2018. Wow. Okay. So this is another step then that you're kind of, um, you know, just jumping into the fire to do, your own video show, you know, you come in as a writer of news and other features, you become a sports writer, and now you're a sports personality. Uh, was there any, you know, trepidation in, in obviously, you were doing video stuff uh, previously, but to have an, an online show for SI is a big deal. Oh, yeah, I was terrified. I was absolutely <laughs> terrified. I, I was, Sarah, it's, it's funny to hear you sort of say it out loud because I'm like, wow, yeah, that is, that is a little insane. <laughs> um, and I'm very lucky to have people who've, you know, at every publication who've believed in me and, and what I've done has been kind of different and sometimes off the beaten path. And to have people champion that and, and want to and see the value in it, you know, and support it and let me kind of trust me to do my thing and that it's going to work has been I feel very lucky for that. Um but yeah, at, at SI, I was like, okay, um, you know, I I knew that I, I was pretty sure I was good on camera. Like I'd done enough stuff that um, I, and I've always been a ham, um, like 
when I was 13, I, you know, I was like sleeping over at a friend's house or something. We put on some show for maybe I was 11 or 12. I don't remember, but we put on like some show with her sister for the parents dinner party. And, um, when my parents went to pick me up, the dad, you know, comes to the door. I'm sort of trundling out with my sleeping bag or whatever. And he just says to my parents, he goes, give this girl a microphone. Um, <laughs> So I've always I've always loved to talk, <laughs> um, for better or for worse. But um, the show was really informative because no matter how good you are naturally, I think until you get the reps in, you're not going to know exactly how to be on camera. You know, and I, and I think I mean something that you do all the time, even whether it's a podcast, whether it's a whether it's TV, when you are on, you are not only listening to what the person is saying in the moment and trying to react and make them feel comfortable. You're also thinking five questions ahead. You know, if they say this, what am I going to ask next? If they say that, how am I going to make it not uncomfortable? If I, you know, just sort of like there, it's a choose your own adventure that can go haywire at any second. Um, And I just found that the show was unbelievable practice. Um, And I think that as I sort of was watching episodes, I was like, okay, I I actually, I think I'm getting better at this. I think I might have an idea of how to do this now um, in a way that was, that was very cool to kind of feel myself learn. So the Wilder Project was the online TV show. You did a podcast called MV Podcast with another uh, female personality at SI. Um, Those are both gone now, and you're just focusing on the writing side of things. Is that a part of everything changing at SI? Is that them sort of uh, rejiggering who's working on what and what's being funded? Yeah, it is. Um, Yeah, we had – so I had the Wilder Project, which – Jessica Smetana, who's a, a dear friend of mine, she produced that. And then we did a podcast together. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's been a, it's been a weird year at us. I, I, I can't say that it hasn't been. Um, I think that there were, there've been a lot of shifts in, obviously there's, there's new ownership that's come in. There've been a lot of shifts. They let a lot of people go, um, which was, that was a really hard day. Um, you know, I've been, what I don't say in sort of my, my, career path or my trajectory is that every major media company I've worked for, um, there have been mass layoffs. Um, mm. The SI layoffs were the fifth time that I had, you know, watched my friends get walked out of the building. And mm. it never gets easier. It never feels like it makes sense. Um, there's a lot of anger, I think, around that as those things happen. I think that the media industry is constantly shifting. And so there sometimes are going to have to be Hard changes like that, um, but it, it, you know, I think it sort of depends on how necessary everything feels at the time. And um, so since then, you know, there, there's been a lot of shift um, in strategy at SI. And for now, I am I am focusing much more on the writing. And every every article still has a, a video attached to it. So, um, you know, I did a bunch of stand-ups at the Super Bowl. And, um, you know, for, for pieces I do in the future, those will have a video component, which, um, you know, I think, I think makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, it's been, um, it, there, there's been a lot of shifts. And I, I think we've seen a lot of that in, um, in the industry in, in general, especially this, this past fall. Yeah. So you keep your gig, but it slightly changes. Um, what is, what is, like the goal, like, did you love doing the TV stuff? Are you happy to be back writing with some video component? Did you like the podcast? What, what is the thing you'd hope in the future that you'd get to settle on? Or is it all of them? It's all of them, honestly. I mean, you know, something that I feel very lucky for is that I genuinely like doing all of it. Um, You know, I know some writers who feel that in the current media climate, industry, whatever you want to call it, they they feel, you know, like, oh, I have to do this video or I, I have to be on camera. I really just want to write. But I I really honestly love, I love the writing. I love the on-camera stuff. I love podcasting. I think ultimately I would love to um, get to a place where I'm, I'm doing all of that again in a way that makes sense. And I'm, I'm confident that'll happen. Um, but it's been super cool to have people trust me enough to let me um, to let me do all of it and then to kind of prove to myself that I can. I think, 
it's hard in this business, uh, especially there's, there's a lot of comparisons to other people. There's a lot of worrying, like, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Do people hate me because I'm not doing enough? Do they hate me because I'm doing too much? Am I, you know, it's a very, uh, it it can be easy to kind of get in your head about it. And I think it only gets easier as you just keep doing it and keep showing up and proving to yourself that you can. I mean, I don't know if you feel that way at all, but I think the more confident I get in myself and my ability, the much less my anxiety is. And, um, you know, I think about now versus even like three, four years ago, I feel like a completely different person in my work because I actually, you know, I've had enough data points to be like, hey, you can actually do this. Like you, you are doing this. Um, but I think that's really only something that comes with time. I completely agree. And um, I think also it's the people you surround yourself with and how as you get more confident in your own work, you also recognize other people that you really respect that can kind of roll with the punches and admit that they can't know everything. I think in this job, one of the things that's difficult, especially if you're like a multi-hyphenate, is you look at the best writer and you're like, I have to be as good as them. And then you look at the best TV person. You're like, I also have to be as good as the best TV person, even if they only do TV and they never write. I also have to be the best writing person. (laughs) And one of my biggest mentors, and I talk about this a lot, is Dan Levitard, and he's so brilliant as a writer and a radio person, a TV person, but he will fully admit in the middle of live shows that he doesn't know something that everyone would assume that he knows, whether it's the coach of an NBA team or naming more than two people on that NBA team, right? He just kind of lets it be okay that there are gaps of knowledge in this industry because it literally would be impossible to know everything that is going on in every sport, or if you did, to be able to eloquently speak or add an opinion or thought on it that goes beyond statistics or or info, just straight facts. Um, Part of the job is to be interesting and to be able to storytell and to think of things in a way that's different than other people, not just to be able to regurgitate who plays for whom and, you know, how many, you know, points they have every night. And understanding that and then realizing that I can fit in in my own space instead of replacing Mm -hmm. or modeling someone else was like the biggest eye opener. And then it made it so much easier to just do what I'm good at and that I like to do. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I mean, I think I have so much more respect for someone when they say, I don't know, than when they try to make it up as they go along to seem like an expert or to seem credible because I'm like, first of all, I think that a lot of people, I think a lot of people in this industry often assume that fans expect um, media people to be like these all-knowing gods who have all the answers. And if they don't, they're bad at their jobs and, you know, to sort of guide them through the sports world. And I'm like, no one expects that. Like, I feel like I can still acutely remember what it felt like to be sitting at America's Test Kitchen, to have no one know who I was, to feel like I hadn't done anything or proved anything and and watch personalities either on Twitter or on television or in their writing. Um, I remember what it felt like to be such a fan of those people. And, you know, I've, I've met a lot of them now. Some of them are my dear friends. Some of them I, I'm like, oh, my God, I was I was obsessed with you. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think that what I remember most about being just a consumer is that I didn't expect anything more than I expected from myself. You know, I was like, I will like your stuff. I will connect with your content, which is, I kind of hate that word, but like, let's go with it. Um, You know, I'll, I'll connect with your stuff. If I feel like you're being real with me, if I feel like you're being authentic and, and that's something that I think brands have kind of been, and, and publications have been chasing a lot recently is authenticity because totally. it kind of became, you know, it became clear that like the only thing people really believe in is when you are being exactly who you are. And that can be for better or for worse. You know, I think that there are a lot of examples of people who kind of manipulate that and play with it. But I think that when, when you're someone that, that people trust or believe, like they're not really going to care if you get a stat wrong. You know, it, it makes you more right. human. Like they, they get stats wrong. Everybody gets everything wrong all the time. No one has any idea what they're doing, I think. Yeah, but I think you're right. And I think authenticity becomes even more important now where everything is constantly like potentially a trick, right? You Like you watch yes. Bryce Harper with two you know, hair dryers and you're like, this is going to be an ad. You see the picture for Tom Brady. This is going to be an ad. Like you never know what you're watching and whether it's authentic and real. And just that general mindset around all the 
video and content around you kind of makes you want to strip it down and not have everybody be polished and perfect. I remember like one of the things I loved about Twitter really early on was the number of people who thought all of my radio updates were written for me. Like they assumed that oh I couldn't God. do it myself. I'm like, first of all, that would be a really a, a waste of an employee if they just wrote the things that I read for me. But um, <clears throat> but the idea that everyone watching Twitter simultaneously watching a game, like they would presume, hopefully, that the things I was tweeting meant that I understood what I was watching and this was my natural reaction. And, you know, when I first started doing TV, how much of this is in teleprompter? I'm like, none of that. That's me talking. And so yeah. this idea that like you constantly have to prove it, I think particularly as women, it's this balance of like you, you want to be polished and professional, but be real enough that people know that this is you and not some script or some, you know, just memorized thing. I think that matters a ton in getting people to want to be on your side, too. Um, I want to quickly talk about, you know, your sense of humor, because I think one of the things in my career that I embrace so much is wanting to bring that to the forefront when appropriate, right? There's plenty of times that it's not. But I've gotten into conversations with people before where I say it can be tough as a woman because, for instance, on social media, if I make a joke, a lot of people don't get it because they assume that my base of knowledge isn't high enough to be making the joke I'm making. And that's really (laughs) frustrating. Or I can't do the things that a lot of guys can do for a laugh because of the way women are sexualized all the time. Like, and this is not a take or like a criticism of any of these men, but like, I couldn't make a bet like Mike Golick Sr. and do Kim Kardashian's photo shoot. Right. I can't right. feel comfortable going in a dunk tank at an event because even if it's not sexualized when men do it, it is when a woman gets in there. Like there's just ways yeah. that I feel limited. So do you ever feel when you're trying to bring comedy to your video shoots, to your events, like that there is this sort of constant voice in the back of your head of like, oh, I can't do that or I can't say that because everything will get spun in that direction, even when I'm being the most intentionally non-sexual or even intentionally unattractive? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that any woman, yes, that's the backdrop. That is the backdrop of what we're working with here. Yesterday, I I actually, I tweeted, so yesterday I tweeted, um, or two days ago when the XFL was getting going, I had a tweet go viral that was like, um, yeah, I said something like, the XFL is like the NFL if it put on jorts, slambacks, and fireball shots, and lost its keys and had to sleep on a friend's couch. <laughs> so people thought, like, the, the tweet did really well. People thought it was funny, whatever. Um, but I started getting a lot of responses from men, you know, and when I looked at their, their avatars, it was usually, like, you know, 20-somethings, um, who were saying, like, you try too hard, or stop trying to be, like, insert literally any funny sports dude in the comments. And I was like, my God, you know, I, I don't see that happening to men. And I tweeted something like, you know, it's sometimes a hard part about doing this is that I get people telling me I'm trying too hard, or, you know, stop trying to be a man when they don't say that to men. And I was like, cut it out, because if I were trying too hard, I'd probably be working in finance or I'd still be at that email <laughs> marketing company. Right. Um, but I, I ended up deleting it because I started having people, you know, kind of take issue with that one, too. And I was just like, I do not have the energy for this. But yeah. I think, you know, I kind of go back and forth, um, honestly. I think that to a certain extent, part of my success in this industry probably is because I am a woman. I think there are a lot of places that realize they do need more, um, you know, not like I've been, you know, a, a you know woman hire or something. But, you know, I think that places are wising up to the fact that if you have people who don't all look the same, you're going to have much more variety of opinion. You're going to be able to catch blind spots that you don't know you have. Um, and so I think I've been able to kind of set myself apart to a certain extent because, you know, there are not a ton of us who are women who are funny, who have been able to actually make this work, um, which is devastating. But also, I think that that has been a part of my career. I also think that if I were a guy, I'd probably be a lot farther along than I am at right. this age. And so it's, it's a sort of fine line between, um, I don't know, I, I think... The sexualization is really interesting because, you know, there are always I'm, I feel like I'm constantly walking this line between not wanting to deny who I really am or, or what I look like or how I want to dress just because someone says I shouldn't. While also not wanting to seem like I am using that at all as a reason that might undercut my actual ability. And 
I try not to think about it too much. I try to really just kind of do what I'm going to do because I think that's the only way we're going to make progress is if we just like kind of power through through and be like, here I am. If you have an issue with it, like that is your problem. Um, but of course it, of course it's stuff I think about. And, um, I think there are benefits and, and deterrence to both sides of that coin. And, um, it's just, I I think it's just something that you kind of just have to get more of us into these spaces for everything to get more normal when, when it comes to women in in these positions. Yeah. It's interesting. You said that because, um, when I first did the Levitard show, it's the first woman that they had in to co-host and do the show and, and they loved me and I didn't really know what was going on yet. And I was kind of just reacting. And then once I started coming on more and got comfortable and I was more myself, which is bold and outgoing and crass and sarcastic, they all of a sudden turned on me. <laughs> Not all of them, but a, a, a chunk of them. And it was that same line. Oh, the audience? Stop, yeah, stop pretending. The audience, yeah, yeah, not yeah. the guys of the show. The audience, it was stop pretending you're trying too hard. And I'm like, oh, no, this is actually who I am. <laughs> this is like just who I am. <laughs> and right. I do think it is this difficult for a lot of people if they if they don't have women in their everyday lives that are just like this, they think it's like an act or a put on to be trying to fill the space that some men in the industry do. And that, and that makes it really difficult because I asked myself the same question. Do I need to back off to appease these people or am I not serving myself or other women if I back off and try to play the role of the diminutive, <laughs> right? You know, right. Um, because that's more palatable. And so I decided not to, but it's always in the back of my head and that, that's frustrating at times. But um, that's sort of the balance, I think, in the line that we walk, you know, do I still want to be someone that the average sports fan wants to like grab a beer and talk sports with while also totally alienating them with my talk of feminism and, and equal rights, <laughs> right? Like, how do I do both? Right. One thing on that that I that I actually think about a lot um, to sort of go back to the sailing thing for a second. I think of I think of how I interact with my following online a lot like how I approach teaching sailing, which is I was um, and I think part of the reason that I have felt at home in the sports world, despite um, being a woman in an industry that is very male, is that I have spent my whole life in male spaces. The sailing world was incredibly male. I was running the program. I was the only woman instructor and I was in charge of seven guys. And then the majority of the kids we taught were also boys. And so I kind of, and, and, in you know, I've always been very good friends with men. I have, I, I just sort of, you know, I have a bunch of different types of friends. And so when I would teach sailing, I would think of it as like most of the time I used humor. Like most of the time I was joking around, mm-hmm. we were having fun, everyone was having a good time. But when, when I got serious, like when someone was about to die because their boat flipped over, when someone was goofing around and it was actually putting other people in danger, and I would like go really full on like zero to 60 to like cut that out or to be serious they would just immediately listen. And I kind of think about that with, I, I think most of the time we keep it very light. Um, I mostly stick to jokes and, and sports stuff just because I think that that, you know, I, I only have so much of a stomach for so much online, to be honest. Like, and I, and I sort of found that balance for what works for me. But then if there is something that I do feel very strongly about that might be more serious when I feel the need to say it, I find that people, I don't get a ton of, backlash because they're like, wow, I think she kind of picked her spot on this. Right. So just to say that for sure. And that's it. But but that's a that's a luxury that I have as someone who covers sports and usually the lighter side of things that people who are writing about, you know, race issues or gender issues day in, day out in sports, they don't have that luxury. And that's not fair that that is that is a way that I've been able to kind of protect myself. But and and you know, I think it just ties into all these these questions of privilege and, and who gets to do what in this industry that um, that I really try to be cognizant of. Yeah. Uh, we're running out of time, but I wanted to quick ask you about the story that you wrote that had your parents having to go to the police. And we don't have to get into specifics, but I think it, it speaks to what we were just talking about, how the rules of, of engagement are a bit different for men and women. And you particularly felt that this story that you wrote about the Patriots and their connections to, at the time, uh, I believe was just a nominee, Donald Trump, uh, was difficult for the fan base that was predominantly Democratic. And a local radio station in Boston decides to take you to task for the story. 
Can you kind of just share what happened as a result of you writing a story that actually had no personal opinion in it and was entirely about uh, the fan base and what you had interviewed and, and talked to people about? Yeah, that was that was my first. You know, I've had a number of different sort of kerfluffles online um, where things have gone viral and I have been, you know, one group of people has loved me and another group of people has hated me. I've also had things where everybody has only loved me and that has only happened when I met Paul Rudd on an airplane. Um, but it was delightful not to have anybody mad at me for that one. I, so I wrote this article um, in 2016 about um, how, you know, the Patriots had a connection to Trump probably more than any other NFL team or, or more vocally, at least more visibly. And how I found that strange because um, Massachusetts was the only state in which every county voted for Hillary. And at the time, everything was so raw politically, and I don't know that I would write that story now because I don't know that it would have had the same impact. I think it was a very different time, even just three and a half years ago when I was reporting this. But, you know, at the time, I think it was an important story to do, and I ended up getting in this sort of protracted fight with this radio station where, you know, they, they were dragging me. It did become very gendered. Um, you know, they were spreading rumors that, like, different... NFL writers in Boston had crushes on me and that was the only reason they were standing up for me. And mm. I would get texts from people being like, Hey, my wife is pissed. What's going on? And I was like, I don't know. Like it Ugh. took on, it took on so many different ways. And, and my parents actually, they, they got um, death threat at the house or, or sort of hate messages at the house. And my mom went to the police and, and I was just aware of the power. First of all, I think it speaks to, sports fandom in general, which is it's tribal and, and you feel very connected to your team so that when someone attacks your team, they're attacking you. And I think that I was still, you know, I'd only been in sports for about a year at that point, And maybe I didn't fully understand the degree to which that was true. And I think now when I write things, I kind of try to try to think about how will this sound so that I'm not alienating people because if you alienate them, they're less likely to listen to you. If you can right. keep them closer, maybe they'll get some of what you're saying. But it was just a really formative experience in terms of like, you know, when you're in the middle of one of these online debacles, you know, you can you can put your phone down and not look at Twitter, but you know in the back, like, you know it's still going on. You know people are still, you know, sending you rape threats. Um, right. And so it's this total cognitive dissonance because you can like walk to the grocery store, but then you check your phone. And, and, and to be fair, it was also, um, I got a ton of support. I think a lot of people in the industry sort of became aware of me because of this fight. So on some level I was like, wow, I am personally benefiting from this horrible thing in such a weird way that, I mean, the internet, it's just crazy, man. I, I say, <laughs> I think that writing on the internet is like, you know, being an anxious person who, who writes online for a living or who appears on television where, or, or, you know, anything public is like being someone who's deathly afraid of snakes, but owns a snake store, Right. <laughs> you know, like you, you yeah. got to go in and like put your hand in the cage every day, but you're like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, and at the same time, it's like super fun and I love it. And I feel so lucky to get to do it. Um, I'm always just like totally blown away that anyone cares what I have to say, I think is what it comes down to. Did it make you any less likely to dive into controversial waters again? And, you know, I wouldn't be judgmental if it did, because I certainly have chosen not to engage in things on Twitter because I just don't have the energy. I, I don't know if it's going to make a difference, so I'm not even going to post it because I don't feel like having to deal with what's going to you know, come as a response. No, totally. I mean, I think that I think it's sort of case by case. I think that in some instances, I don't weigh in on something because I know that my tweet is not going to change a damn thing. Right. And it's just going to either rile people up or make my life a little bit harder for a few hours. But then there are times when, you know, I, I feel very strongly about something to the point where, where I will say something knowing that it's going to ruffle feathers. But I think it, you know, this career, if you're lucky, is is a long one. And um, so I think sort of, you know, something what you just said about, you know, knowing you don't have the bandwidth for it at a certain point in what you decide to wade into becomes kind of about self-preservation and being sure you can wake up every day and do this. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of times if there's something I really do care about, I'll try to find a way to tell that story 
um, or to write that story in a more full way. I think that the internet is still very limited in terms of quick thoughts that you might dash off as opposed to something that you really sit with that's a little longer that's considered that your editors can be like, Hey, are you sure you want to phrase it that way? Right. Um, right. You know, so I, I think the sort of the, the bigger things or the things that I, that I really do try to bring some light to generally, I, I keep those kind of in the work, less, less peripherally um, personality stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, we're out of time. We could talk forever. But uh, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions nobody expects and everybody gets. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Ooh. Um, oh, my God. This is so probably... Exile on Main Street, Rolling Stones. Ooh, good one. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, my sheer blind will to do this. <laughs> <laughs> ignorance. Ignorance. Stupidity. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um, my biggest failure... Oh, my God. Um, probably all of the times I have let what other people have said or thought about me that I have known kind of at my core not to be true, that I have let those really, really get to me and affect the way that I do things. Mm, that's that's the Internet for you. Yeah. Con- constant reminder that um, you should not let people who can't, give you anything and that you would never ask for advice, uh, make you feel bad about yourself or, or, you know, change your opinion on things that you would never ask them about or, or care what their response was. It's tough to do though. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Uh, yeah. (laughs) That sounds like many. Um, no, I've been in one. Um, this idiot that I knew in high school, um, came to visit friends of mine in college and he stole my roommate's necklace and she, Ooh. and then he started saying really vulgar things to us. And she and I just like totally went at him and he had to go home with a, a bruise on his head. <laughs> wow. All right. That's legit. And it was um, before Easter. So his mom was like, why do you have a bruise on your head at Easter services? <laughs> uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, um, Martha Stewart. Interesting. Which part of her life is so compelling to you? Everything. She is the country house. She is the main house. She posted, Sarah, she posted an Instagram today saying it was a picture of her. She's like 75 or 76, I think. She Her legs look amazing, and she's standing there, and she goes, horseback riding is good for your legs. That's the entire caption. <laughs> um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, my God. When I was... Um, I've, I've told the story before, I think, when, when I was in seventh grade, no, sixth grade, I don't know, I had my first boyfriend, and he came over, and I got so freaked out that there was a boy in my house that I was supposed to, like, like, that I totally had no idea what to do, and my mom ended up taking us to the car wash, and he sat in the back, and I sat in the front seat. Oh, no. Oh, no, <laughs> was that awful. was your big date? Yeah, but we're really good friends now, so I, he just gives me shit about it, and I'm like, okay, well, at yeah, least I'm not, so. like, mortified thinking about it. Yeah. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, God. If I could sing, I would be the happiest person alive. I wish I could <laughs> sing or dance. Want it be like real? I, I mean, I can dance, but it's not pretty. Um, but like one or the other, I would love that. Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Oh, my God. Um I think I would really be like, what if we didn't kill each other? <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. That's not bad. Right? Like, what if we what if we stopped the whole wars thing? Could we try mm. that? I think that mm. would solve a lot of problems. Wars and just regular killings. Let's get all. Yeah, of them. just like perfect. Just like cut it out, everybody. That's that's the Charlotte Wilder. Just cut it out, everybody. Twenty twenty one. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, the most scared I've ever been 
is probably I once took a, a I was driving a boat like I had to go 15 miles across this open ocean to get to a different island but it was like totally thick fog and I couldn't see a single thing and the GPS wasn't working and I was like this is this is how it ends um mm. Also, one time I got run over by a boat. That was probably the most scared I've ever been. But yeah. both times I made it. That's not good. What kind of boat was it? <laughs> it was the worst. It was a pontoon boat. <laughs> oh, no. Just <laughs> sustained yeah, I was just sustained bottom, like no brakes. That's yep. unfortunate. Yep. And they were towing a, a kid on a tube, and it was just, it would have been a, t- I remember as like, I dove down, and so like the the mo- the propeller just missed my head. But Ooh. like I remember thinking, this is not this is not a cool way to die. <laughs> no, it would be terrible, absolutely terrible. Yeah. Uh, number yeah. ten. What three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Um, I hope they would say that I am kind, generous, and funny. Those are good. Those are good ones. Finally, the bonus question, who should I have on this podcast? Who's an interesting person to talk to? Ooh, well, besides Martha Stewart, um, yeah, does, do they have to be in sports? No, literally anyone. That's true. You have you have many non-sports people on. Um, I would say Martha Stewart, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, <laughs> or Laura Dern. <laughs> Wow, okay, very accessible people that I should be able to just call uh, up. Okay, no, no, but realistically, um, I mean, I still think you can get those guys. Um, I don't know, maybe you just had Chris. You just had Chris Long on. Yes. Um, maybe Kyle. Have you had Kyle on yet? I have not had Kyle on yet, so he's on the list. I'm going to give it a gap. Yeah. I can't, I'm not going to go back-to-back longs, but I am going to uh, reach out to him soon, so that's a good suggestion. Yes, you, Kyle. Awesome. Well, nice to actually uh, pick your brain, meet you more. I look forward to uh, spending time with you again, perhaps at a Gronk-related destination. Oh, my God. Same, Sarah. You were the perfect person to go to Gronk Beach with. We didn't really get into that, but I just want your listeners to know that you were the champion of Gronk Beach. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. That is, I'm going to put that on my, my headstone. Please do. Please People do. will probably assume I died there, but that's fine. It's a good way to go. <laughs> If we're, if we're talking we, ways to go out, death by Grog Beach, not bad. Not truly, bad. truly. I think that that's uh, all any of us can ask for. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, people who see a funny meme on Twitter or Instagram, and then they copy-paste the text or rewrite it themselves and post it to their own social media accounts as if they thought of it. I mean, it's bad enough to, like, share a meme without including the original creator or, like, crop off the watermark or their handle so it's just, like, your own thing. But to full-on type out the joke yourself, word by word, as if you wrote it yourself, so lame. And there are people that I know personally that do this all the time. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Like, they're not even usually good jokes. They're like, thanks for teaching me the meaning of plethora. It means a lot. How does Moses make his coffee? He bruised it. I'm sending a W-2 form to everyone who was up in my business last year. Right? Okay, we get it. You follow Jerry and Betches and No F***s Given and The Fat Jew and literally every other account that millions of people follow. Why don't you try following someone to the library, reading a book, thinking some sort of independent thought, and then making your own jokes? No? No? Okay. Well, then at least just hit share on that bitch like the rest of us. Don't type it out. On your Facebook, like you wrote it yourself. Okay, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Give credit to the original poster. Don't rewrite jokes or pretend they're your own. Read a book. There, I fixed it. If you have a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said. Rate and review. Leave a dilemma in your review and maybe I'll fix it on the podcast. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 